0: Okay, we don't have any announcements that I'm aware of tonight, except just to remind everyone that um, if you leave, is there a problem back there, you don't have any sound back there? No sound back in the fellowship hall. Tonight is the night when the technology demons are running amok at West Houston Bible Church. So, um, where was I? Okay, there's going to be a wedding here over the weekend. Rehearsal Friday afternoon, wedding 3 o'clock on Saturday afternoon. So if you leave your stuff in here, it might get stored somewhere so that it is out of the way. So for those of you who leave your Bibles or your whatever here, uh, make sure you take it home. Either tonight or Thursday night, so that uh, it won't be lost in the shuffle over the weekend. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll take a few moments so that we can be spiritually prepared to study the word this evening and be strengthened and encouraged as we look at God's word. So if necessary, uh, you need to confess sin and be spiritually prepared so that we can study the Word. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our as we read through Scripture, we are impressed with... Your greatness, your omnipotence, your omniscience, all that you are, but above all we are impressed with your grace, unmerited favor that we deserve nothing, and yet you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing because we are in Christ. And Father, we thank you so much for all that you have given us. And tonight as we study the Word and we look at how uh, Israel was so rebellious and forgot you, ignored you, despised you over the years, and yet you continue to uh, deliver them out of grace, we pray that that might be true of our nation as well. And Father, we pray that you might strengthen us and that we may face whatever comes because we have your Word and the Holy Spirit. And we trust in you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles to Judges 3, 7, one more time into Judges chapter 3, verse 7. And tonight we're looking at the question: why did God deliver Israel? And that we have to ask that question because. It doesn't say, except in a couple of places, that they came even close to acknowledging their sin, and so we have to look at this and try to understand why God did deliver Israel so many times in the period of the judges. So what we have seen is that there are these three sections to the to the book, the introduction, which we have finished, which basically lays out a summary of what's what we're going to see through the cycles of of leadership, the cycles of discipline, the cycles of deliverance, and the cycles of rebellion that occur six times in this book. And that God delivers Israel each time except the last time. And then it, um, although Samson has a victory in the temple of Dagon, there's no deliverance, and that's the situation of of the beginning of the book of First Samuel, which we've studied, chapters three seven to sixteen thirty one, talk about these cycles, major judges, Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, Gideon. Jephthah and Samson, and then these uh, lesser judges that were, they're only lesser because little is said about them, and we see that the leadership gets progressively worse and more and more paganized, and as we study a few lessons back, we see that they, with the exception of Othniel and perhaps Ehud to some degree these leaders do not measure up at all to God's standards for for leadership for Israel as laid out in Exodus. And so we see that God has to use us where we are, and he uses fallen people, he uses flawed people and flawed leaders, and that is, again, an example of the grace of God. And then we see how this cultural evil that pervades Israel infects the priesthood and also infects all of the people. So it is not a positive portrayal of the nation at all, and, but it is a picture of where they were in terms of moral relativism, everyone doing what was right in their own eyes, and it is a, it is a reflection of what is going on in our own culture. So what we have seen in the last couple of weeks is that uh, the importance of history, the importance of recognizing that uh, when a nation forgets God, as Israel does, that doesn't just mean they have a case of temporary amnesia. It is that they have made a volitional decision to ignore God, to disregard God, and to disrespect God. And this is exactly what Israel did. They are forgetting God and ignoring Him, and they are rationalizing God out of their thoughts. Uh, So they are acting and living, as we saw at the end last time in Romans chapter 1, as if God is not there at all, and they are instead worshiping the creature, worshiping various idols and worshiping God's creation rather than uh, the Creator. And they are so arrogant that they profess to be wise, and they have indeed become fools. And the result of that is that then as now, it led it led, and it leads to the spiritual collapse of the nation. So in Judges 3-7, we see that this generation has forgotten God because they have divorced themselves from reality. And when a nation or culture does that, they forget their own history. And they make up myths and legends and narratives to explain the past that have nothing whatsoever to do with what actually happened. And in postmodernism, it really doesn't matter what actually happened because each person gets to make up their own reality. And once they make up their own reality, then... Uh, they start living as if that is actual and it just leads to further degeneration and, and a further divorce from reality so that they have no idea what's really going on and then this is perpetuated uh, as they teach it to the next generation and it gets, it, it accumulates and it becomes cumulatively worse and I was reading something in a news article today about how uh, someone has tweeted out a lot of documentation showing how teachers in Iowa are teaching critical race theory in the classroom and I read just a couple of weeks ago that uh, that the state legislature uh, criminalized that And but I, I've been waiting for this to happen because in the, the shape this nation is in and the arrogance that is taking place upon those who are uh, intellectually arrogant, thinking of themselves as the elite, and they can correct all of the ills of our society by blaming it all on racism and operating on on this uh, Marxist critical race theory, that I knew that these legislatures that have uh, forbidden the teaching of critical race theory are going to have a fight on their hands because you, and if they're forbidding it, I haven't read the Texas statute yet, but if they're prohibiting it in state-funded classrooms, that includes every classroom at the University of Texas and the University of, of um, and Texas Tech University and Texas A&M and University of Houston. Well, Houston's not a Texas. I don't think that's state-funded. All of the, others, all of the state-funded uh, universities. And yet the liberal elite that dominate these schools are just going to ignore it and rebel against it. And as that happens, it's just going to move us further down the line of just cultural uh, division and antagonism and hatred, which is exactly what the Marxist um, propaganda, uh, the Marxist strategy is, is to divide a nation against itself. And then they're going to quote Jesus, but they don't know they're quoting Jesus Um, and they'll say something about a house divided against itself, can't stand, and so they have to push some sort of a a totalitarian leader into place. And this is what happens again and again and again. And so uh, we're witnessing that, and it's a great opportunity for us to be missionaries to this culture. And uh, so often I find that uh, Christians I talk to are discouraged and depressed because we're having to live through these times But nobody ever guaranteed us that we would live in better times. And that's just our own example of being divorced from reality. We as believers know that we're living in the devil's world, and so we need to understand the devil's world and recognize that it's not any better, uh, actually, than it was at the time of the Apostle Paul. And so we need to realize that we have a mission, and that mission isn't, isn't our personal comfort, our personal security, and our, our personal wealth. Our mission is to represent the high court of heaven as ambassadors to a fallen world, and, because we're the only ones who have the truth and who have, uh, have the answers. So what we see here is there's always this tendency among fallen humanity to make up their own narrative, to make up their own history, to rationalize reality, to reshape it into the image that they, uh, that they want. And this has been true. We call it, um, uh, we call it historical revisionism. Now, in Judges two seven and 2.12, we see what happens in terms of explaining the mental attitude process that occurs in this form of degeneracy. The, so the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and then it goes on to say when that generation was gone and um, all of the, those elders of that time that outlived Joshua after they had all left, all of those who had seen the great works of the Lord— that then the nation abandoned the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. So they're going to rewrite history and deny that Yahweh brought them out of Egypt. And this is doesn't start with their generation. We saw that foreshadowed uh, when Moses was up on Mount Sinai And he was up there for 40 days and 40 nights and people got restless and they started putting the pressure on Aaron to make a golden calf for them, which he did. And then when he has made this, look at what he says. They say, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And so now after they have just witnessed within the last year, Within the last few months, actually, they have witnessed the miracles of the ten plagues, of God's deliverance, of their deliverance through the Red Sea. They have seen God's provision in the wilderness, provision of water, provision of manna, and now they are going to attribute that to this visible golden calf, and they're going to say that this is the golden calf, this is the God that delivered them. And this continues to be a problem in Israel, the the sins just keep getting passed on, and you get down, you move from fourteen forty five BC, and you move forward to the time of Jeroboam, which is about five hundred years later, and it's after the death of Solomon, which is around nine twenty seven BC and Jeroboam splits the 10 tribes in the north off of away from the two tribes in the south uh Judah is the primary one Judah and Benjamin and separates them out and he recognizes that he's going to have a major PR problem if he all of his people keep going down to Jerusalem to the temple there in order to worship God during the three feast days that are mandated in the in the Mosaic Law, so he's going to set up uh, competing temples, one in Bethel and one further north, in uh, in the area of Dan. And some of you have been with me in Israel, where we have gone up and we have seen the reconstruction up there and the site where that altar. Uh, was established and when he when he is, when he has these two golden calves made then he announces in 1st Kings 12, 28, here are your gods o israel which brought you up from the land of egypt and so this historical revisionism isn't something new to our generation this has been used throughout the centuries of people who have uh, rejected God. Once you reject God, then you have to come up with your own narrative. That's why uh, Darwin was so became so popular. Was he came, gave came up with an alternate theory of how the human race came into existence, and so people could justify their atheism. Now, as we look at um, look at history and what happens during this time and the events that are selected in the book of Judges, because there are, after all, a tremendous number of events that occurred during this period of time. We have a period of time that begins roughly around uh, uh, around uh, 1350 B.C. and extends to about 1050 B.C., about 300 years, and during this time, there were a lot of people who lived, there were a lot of events that took place, and yet God is going to focus on just certain people and certain events. So we'll summarize this because we recognize that God the Holy Spirit, as the divine author of Scripture, is giving us an editorial about history for our learning, for us to to um, be educated in terms of these basic principles. But although we focus on a lot of the things that are going on here because of the rebellion against God and what happens to a culture, we also have to address the question, what what are some of the other major themes that are being illustrated here, which is what I'm going to focus on uh, this evening? So, one of the first things we ought to recognize is that there are many other events and people and situations that occurred during this time, but God the Holy Spirit led the writer of judges to carefully select these judges. And there may have been some other leaders, we don't know. Some of the judges that are mentioned are uh, just. Mentioned in a very abbreviated form, we just have their name, and then there are. But there are six major judges, and they are selected for specific reasons. And we're not told everything about them. In fact, if you read Hebrews chapter uh, 11 before you read Judges, you would think that. Uh, Barak and Gideon and Jephthah and Samson were all wonderful heroes and examples of faith throughout all of their lives. But when we look at what's told us in the book of Judges, we realize that they were extremely flawed leaders. They had many failures. And in fact, with, when it comes to Samson, it's very difficult to pinpoint just when did he have a great act of faith. The only one I can identify is at the very end when he has uh, been blinded and he's been in chains in the temple of Dagon by the Philistines that he gets an opportunity as his hair is finally grown back out to knock down the columns that that support the temple, and he cries out to God to strengthen him one more time so that he can uh, knock the temple down. But other than that, we just don't see him doing anything else that is uh, spiritually uh, spiritually great. And yet there were probably things that he did do in obedience to God, but that's not the focal point of either God, the Holy Spirit, or the human writer of Scripture. They're illustrating uh, something else. So the six major examples that are developed in Judges start with Othniel, you really have two two groups of three. You have Othniel, Ehud, and Deborah and Barak at the beginning, and then you have Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson in the second half. Now, there's reasons why uh, I'm going with that kind of division, uh, and maybe I'll bring those out as we go along, but it has to do with various uh, things that are in the text that indicate this kind of a Uh, kind of a division. But those are the major judges. And then there's about five or six others that are rather minor. Third thing to note is that the order of the narratives is not necessarily chronological. This is very important because people get confused. These judges, for example, Samson is operating down in the uh, south and southwest where the philistines dominated whereas gideon is dealing with an incursion from the east with the midianites and you have jephthah who is also dealing with ammonites and others that are coming in from the northeast and so he's in the area of transjordan And there's an overlap, and if you work through the chronology, Jephthah and uh, Samson are operating at the same time, and they're probably still alive at the beginning of Samuel's life. But you don't see that the way things are organized in Scripture. So some of these judges overlap, some of them um, uh, some of their territories are quite different. They're, it doesn't involve the entire nation, but just uh, something regional. Fourth, the the structures follow a basic paradigm that not all of the elements are mentioned all of the time. So I'm going to put a chart here. It's going to be hard for you to see, but I'll read it, and we'll develop this later. And this tells us that the, what the structural and formulaic elements are in the Book of Deliverers—that's the term that's used to describe the section from three seven down through twelve—that uh, that focuses on these these six major judges. And so, what we read in most of the passages, what you'll see here is there's there's six statements that seem to be part of this formula that the writer uses. But he doesn't state them all every time. The first two are stated with all of the judges except for uh, Shamgar. the 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 sons, of evil did, the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So, Othniel, Ehud, Barak, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. That's all said in each of those cycles. And then each cycle also says the Lord gave or sold them into the hands of whoever uh, the oppressing nation was. And this is, again, Othniel, Ehud, Barak, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. Don't worry about trying to write all this down. We're going to break this down in just a minute. Uh, Then there's a statement about the sons of Israel crying out to the Lord. Now, the issue here is crying out to the Lord, does that indicate that they're turning to God? Are they just suffering and uh, crying out to God because they're miserable, but they're not turning to God? So we have to spend a little time. That's the thrust of what we're going to be looking at this evening is in this particular area. And that's mentioned in the Othniel cycle, Ehud, and then in Barak, Gideon, and Jephthah but it's not in the Samson cycle. Remember, the Philistines are oppressing. The people never cried out to God. And when you come to the end of the this book of the deliverers, you come to the end of Samson's ministry, there's no deliverance. They're still being oppressed by the Philistines, and that's how Sam, uh, 1 Samuel begins. They're still under the heel of the Philistines. And then you have God, the statement that the Lord raised up a deliverer in the Othniel and Ehud sections, but that statement is not made in any others, even though he does raise up judges. And then uh, you have the statement, the Lord gave, and that's the, the O-N, stands for the oppressing nation, into the hands of the deliverer. So God delivers a nation and uh, suppresses the oppressing nation. And that's mentioned, again, only in the first two. It's not specifically stated in any of the others. And then there's a statement about the land having rest for so many years. And that's stated in four of them, Othniel, Ehud, Barak, and Gideon, but not with either Jephthah or or Samson. So let's break this down. The first part of this is that God makes a a spiritual evaluation of the nation. And it is stated in every case of these six that the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. What that tells us is that Israel is perverting themselves and abandoning God and turning to idols. As I pointed out, several times so far is that when we have this phrase that Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord it's usually followed by the statement and they serve the Baals and the Asherah so it primarily focuses on idolatry and all sin is in a sense is idolatry because we're serving something other than God we are following somebody else other than God and that is the essence of idolatry So this statement occurs six times uh, in the beginning of six of these narrative cycles, in 3.7 with Othniel, uh, in 4.1 with, uh, or 3.12 with Ehud, in 4.1 with Deborah and Barak in that cycle, in 6.1 in the Gideon cycle, and 10.6 in the Jephthah cycle, and 13.1 in the Samson cycle. So each time we have this clear statement that Israel is turning to idolatry, rejecting God, forgetting God, and abandoning God. So that is is a terminology that is used in the summary section in the first part of chapter 2. Then... There's very little said about the Shamgar incident, but we'll look at that. That's very, very important in some ways. Uh, then there's the divine discipline statement that says either the Lord gave the Israelites into the hands of the enemy or the Lord sold the Israelites into the hand of the enemy. And that's the language that we see in verse 8 in the first cycle, which we'll get to next time. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Kushan rishathaim king of Mesopotamia. And that uh, verb for selling is the word makar, which is the normal term for selling any kind of merchandise. And it's interesting here because it's also the word that's used uh, in selling a human being as a slave. And when you have it in conjunction with the language that the children of Israel served, this is the Hebrew verb avad, which is the same. It's related to the noun for a slave and how you would refer to a slave as someone who is enslaved and serving somebody. Uh, it indicates that God is selling them into slavery, which is an act uh, that the Jews are prohibited uh, from doing to one another in the Mosaic law. But God has said that if they disobey him and they turn to, to other gods, he will do this. He will take away the blessings that they have and the and the freedoms that they have in the land to show that they can't enjoy the land that God gave them unless they do it by following His instructions and being obedient uh, to Him. And so this is a, a very strong statement about the fact that God is basically selling them to a foreign power, and they will be enslaved to that foreign power for eight years. Now, that has never happened to this country, but that doesn't mean it won't happen to this country. And we, when we read about all of the things that are going on uh, with with the Chinese and we read about all the things that uh, the various conspiracies uh, coming out of Russia, we don't know which way this is going to go. I remember when I was a kid back in the 60s that they used to have a saying that was at the height of the Cold War that uh, optimists learned Russian and pessimists learned Chinese. That statement probably ought to be resurrected again, way things are looking now. So that is what is going on here, and so they are in a time of oppression by a foreign power, and that was one of the cycles spelled out in one of the cycles of discipline, that they would be defeated militarily and be oppressed by a foreign power. Then the third statement that is made, it isn't in every one of the... um, of the episodes, and it's not in all six of them, it is only in five of them. It is not in the Samson one. They never cried out to God under the oppression of the Philistines. And this is their cry of distress. Their cry of distress. And the issue here really is what does this mean? And because often, in uh in the literature, in preaching, you will hear people say that this is related to repentance, that they're crying out to God because they are turning back to him. but don't read that into it i uh, I think that maybe when I taught this before, I had that as an idea, and it might be true, but I want to walk you through some of the issues here tonight. Uh, in order to understand what may be going on here and what is the... uh, And it reveals one of the themes that the Holy Spirit and the writer of Judges really wants to impress us with because he doesn't seem to put as much focus on the crying out and the repentance of Israel as he does on something else. So we'll have to look at this. There are five times when the writer says that the Israelites cried out to the Lord. And so we have these in the Othniel episode, the Ehud episode, the episode uh, with the oppression of the Canaanites when Deborah and Barak uh, come out and then defeat them, and then later with uh, in chapter 6 with Gideon, and in chapter 10 with Jephthah. And we'll specifically need to look at that, that verse in 10, 10 and following. But the word that is used here is the word za'ak, which basically means to cry out or to make an outcry or to cry for help in a time of distress. Now I've took this, taken this definition out of the theological word book of the Old Testament, which was a two-volume work that was, it's very good, and it was done by conservative evangelicals. And most of these articles are written by different scholars. And as I was looking at this today, I, I observed that this article on Saak was written by. Uh, an Old Testament scholar. He has long since gone to be with the Lord, but one for whom I have a great deal of respect. His name was Leon Wood, and he taught at Grand Rapids Baptist uh, Seminary up in Michigan uh, back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And he wrote outstanding commentaries on the book of Judges, he wrote an outstanding commentary on Daniel. He's premillennial. He's a pre-trib rapture guy. Uh, he is a man who really honestly deals with the text. He has a tremendous book out on the ministries of God, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Uh, another book out on the prophets. And he is uh, well worth having in your library if you are uh, Someone who is planning on being in the ministry or teaching Sunday school looking for a good source on these books uh, he is he is very good on those things, and he's the one who wrote this article, and of course he spent so much time working through this kind of language in the commentary uh, on on judges and He says in the Cal stem, which is the root stem of a word in Hebrew, it says the word is used almost exclusively in reference to a cry from a disturbed heart, in need of some kind of help. The cry is not in summons of another, but an expression of the need felt. They're just under such pain and misery that they're just screaming out for deliverance. And so he says, most frequently the cry is directed to God. When the Israelites were being invaded annually by the Midianites, they expressed this cry in Judges 6, 6, and 7 occasionally it's directed to a false deity. Now, that's an important reference because if you're crying out to a false deity, then you're not repenting. You're not confessing. Okay? That's important because that tells you that repenting and confessing is not inherent to the meaning of the word. And yet people read that nuance into the word. He says, uh, occasionally it's uh, directed to a false deity and once to a king... A few times the word is used for a cry not directed to anyone, but simply as a note of of alarm. All the city of Shiloh so cried out when told that the ark had been captured by the Philistines. Now that's Leon Wood's comment in the Theological Word Book of the Old Testament. Then in another word uh, in a theological journal article, Jay Hoyt comments on this word that the word describes a loud and agonized cry from someone in acute distress, a cry that comes from a disturbed heart. Where did she get that language? She's quoting the Leon Wood article. Uh, this word is used in legal contexts when a person does not receive his due justice under the law. Now, that's a great observation that when somebody is feeling oppressed or mistreated, then they cry out because they are victims of injustice. And so this person cries out to God asking that he might bring justice. This is not limited to a reaction of pain. It is a plea for someone to help alleviate the pain. The cry is directed to the one who can bring relief from oppression. But one thing is obvious that nowhere does it inherently mean that the person has turned to God or that they have repented. That is, when I'm using that word repent, I don't mean feeling sorry for their sins. It is based on the Hebrew word shuv, which means to turn to God. And that's, that's the concept here. And there's no indication of that unless the text says they cried out to God and turned to Him. Okay? So you can't, you can't just assume that. So that's, that's the text here. Now, the first time that this word is used in the Old Testament is in Exodus 2.23. Now, it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of their bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. Now, there's no indication at all that the reason they are slaves in Egypt was because of some sort of sin. They are in Egypt because God has sequestered them there so that they can grow in an environment where they were uh, more despised by the racist Egyptians than any Ku Klux Klansman had towards African Americans. The Egyptians would have nothing whatsoever to do with a Semite. And so they were sequestered off in the land of Goshen and kept there. So uh, when they cry out, there's no reason indicated in the text that they're, uh, they've committed some, uh, any sin, that they are in idolatry, or that there's any reason for God to be punishing them. It is that they are just feeling the weight of this slavery, and they're crying out to God, Because of the bondage, not because of sin, but because of the bondage. Now, one of the most important passages in looking at this, and the only time in the cycles with the judges that that we have uh, anything indicating confession is in Exodus chapter, I mean, excuse me, Judges chapter 10, verse 10. And you might want to turn there with me, just turning over a couple of pages in your Bible to Judges chapter 10. And this is the uh, beginning of the introduction to the uh, deliverance that is going to be brought about by Jephthah. So what we've seen is that crying out does not necessarily indicate either repentance or turning to God, and that... uh, that it needs to have a specific statement. Well, here we have that specific statement. It begins in Judges 10.10, 10, And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have both forsaken our God and served the Baals. Now, let me ask you a question. I'm, not, I'm going to get personal, but don't answer. Uh, how many of you think that, well, that certainly sounds like a legitimate confession. I mean, how many times have we said something like that? Lord, I've done this or I've done that. We've acknowledged some sin, and we expect God to forgive us. But look at God's response. God's response comes up in the next next verse verses. We read um, uh, God saying, in verse 11 he says, uh, didn't I deliver you from the Egyptians and the Amorites and the Philistines? And then in verses, uh, tw- verse 12 he says, also the Sidonians and Amalekites and Maonites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I delivered you from their hand. God isn't saying, well, I'll forgive you and we'll deliver you. He's reciting all of his actions and delivering them in the past from these oppressors. And then in verse 13, he says, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. Now, how would you feel if you confessed your sin to God and God said that? Well, you know, you've confessed this sin about 5,932 times and I'm just sick and tired of forgiving you. And so I'm not going to deliver you anymore. How would you feel about that? That's a trick question because God doesn't care how we feel about it. See, he's trying to get a point because he recognizes that what's happening here is the, the Israelites, this is a fake confession. They're just trying to manipulate God, and God calls their bluff. And he says, why should I deliver you? Uh, you've forsaken me, and you've served other gods, and why should I for- forgive you? And then in verse 14, he goes on, and he says, Go, cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. How would you like that if that's what God said when you confess your sin? Well, you just enjoyed so much, just go do it and forget about me. So the children of Israel recognize that now they have... God's called their bluff, and they have to get serious. We don't know how much time intervened or what other circumstances there were. We just know the result that the children of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems best to you. Only deliver us this day, we pray. They are under so much adversity. And then what happened? So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. This is shuv. This is turning to God and turning away from the idolatry and from the sins that dominated them and brought about the discipline. So this seems to be a situation by verse 16 where they have confessed to God and they are turning away from their idolatry to God. And as a result of this, we read an interesting statement describing God's compassion for them, and his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. Now, we need to pay attention to that particular phrase, and I'll tell you, we'll come back to it before we're done uh, this evening. But just remember that, that in Judges 10, it states that God could no longer endure the misery of Israel because this takes us back to a summary statement back in Judges 2.18. In Judges 2.18 we read, And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge... For the Lord was, and the King James Version translates, or New King James translates it, the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And that phrase, moved to pity, is the way the uh, ESV, the English Standard Version, the NET, and the NASB all translate uh, this particular Hebrew word, Naham. The NIV, on the other hand, which is a version I usually disagree with, they translated the Lord relented, which is much closer to the sense of the word. You'll see in the blue box on the screen that it is typically translated, a, 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 I mean, the t- basic meaning of nacham has to do with providing comfort for somebody. And so God is recognizing their misery And so he is going to relieve it in order to comfort them, not necessarily because they have confessed their sin or repented, because that is not clearly stated except for that one episode in Judges chapter 10. However, the theological dictionary of the New Testament adds for this meaning, uh, be sorry or repent or regret, Uh, to be comforted or to comfort. Uh, So you always find people trying to uh, bring some sort of emotion like pity, and they abuse the word compassion, Uh, repent. The Lord repented. I think that's how the King James translated it in uh, Judges 6, that the Lord repented that he had made man, and so he's going to bring judgment on the earth. Uh, it has to. Do, it, there's a range of meaning there, so it's the idea that God re, relents, and in some cases, it's an anthropo, uh, anthropopathism, attributing to God a human emotion that God doesn't actually possess, but we get the point, and it instructs us. Uh, and so, we have to look at this this word. In fact, the origin of this this word, nacham has the literal meaning of breathing deeply. And what happens when you look at something and something is, somebody is suffering, there's a sigh, there's a deep inhale and exhale. And so in, in, among, in Hebrew, actually, many things that we call emotions, they, they related them to physical actions. Uh, the literal meaning of the phrase that is usually translated, the, the Lord became angry or so-and-so became angry. The, if you translate the Hebrew literally, it means their nose burned, God's nose burned, or somebody's nose burned. When you get angry, your face turns red, your nose turns red. And so this is just the way in which they would speak. Or you talk about uh, that somebody's glory, and uh, the word that you use is kavod, or kavod, and it relates to something that is heavy, and it goes back to talking about the liver. They thought of the liver as the most significant organ in the body because it's the heaviest organ in the body. And so you, you they connected these different uh, emotions to to different physical uh, properties of the body, and that became became the idiom so it came as an anthropopathism to express these ideas of sorrow or compassion, and it has basically the idea that God is going to comfort them in this particular uh, passage. Now the other word that we run into that we have to say a little something about is this word yasaf which is a hebrew word that has three meanings it means to add something or to continue something so if you're going to continue a sin you're going to keep adding more sins okay so you're uh, just doing you may stop but then you're going to add it again. So that would have the idea that it is maybe Israel stopped sinning and then they started again. But it also has the idea to continue. And so when we find that in some passages where it talks about Israel uh, uh, sinned again, it could easily be translated Israel continued to sin. So it's not, we're not sure necessarily that Israel is repenting that means turning back to God for a time and then uh, then they begin to sin again It, it could very easily have the idea that okay they sort of give it lip service for a little while but they just continue and I think that's probably right when you have this kind of sin that is so attractive to the flesh that even though they were miserable they still they would give god lip service but they would just continue the same sin and so the cycles just got worse and worse and worse each cycle uh took depravity to a uh, another and a lower level and so this would indicate that they really never at least as in as a whole in the culture They never turned back to God as a whole. Maybe some did, but not enough to really matter and make a difference. And we don't see that happening until David takes the leadership when we get into uh, 1 Samuel. So each of these uh, cycles starts with this summary statement that Israel uh, either added to do evil or continued, which I think is probably the main idea. And that would indicate that they never really as a whole turned to God. However, we have a couple of other passages to look at. One is in 1 Samuel chapter 12. So you might want to flip over a few pages to 1 Samuel chapter 12. And this, the context of this is when Saul is made king. And so Samuel is announcing this to the people and presenting Saul as as the king, and he is being uh, 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 crowned as king. And he begins the chapter by saying, Now Samuel said to all Israel, Indeed, uh, indeed I have heeded your voice in all that you said to me, and have made a king over you. And now here is the king uh, walking before you. And as you read down through the chapter, he is talking about uh, some other factors related to uh, what God has done. And, and then he gets down to verse 6, and then we have Samuel saying to the people, It is the Lord who raised up Moses and Aaron, and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may reason with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did to you and your father. So he is going to rehearse the true history of God's relationship with Israel. And in verse 8, he goes back to Jacob going down into Egypt and says, when Jacob had gone into Egypt and your fathers cried out to the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt, and made them dwell in this place. And then he gets into the period of the judges in verse 9. And when they forgot the Lord, which means that they despised him and denied his existence and reality in their lives, he, God, sold them into the hands of Sisera. Now Sisera is the third oppressor. We have uh, the, the oppressor under Othniel, then uh, uh, the Moabites under Ehud, and then the Philistines with Shamgar, and then you get to the fourth uh, oppressor. And this is the Canaanite commander coming out of Hazor, which is up in the northern part of of uh, Galilee. And it's God sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, into the hands of the Philistines and into the hand of the king of Moab. So actually, uh, Eglon, who's the king of Moab, comes first chronologically. So uh, Samuel isn't organizing this chronologically. And just talking about these oppressions. And then in verse 10, then they cried out to the Lord and said, we have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherahs, but now deliver us from the hand of our enemies and we will serve you. So this passage seemed to indicate that they did confess their sin and they did when they cried out to God to deliver them. And then verse 11 says, And the Lord sent Jeroboam, Bedan, Jephthah, And Samuel, that is how the New King James text reads. And this is a very difficult passage because there's some various corruptions and differences between the Masoretic text and the Septuagint and a couple of other ancient uh, versions. Jeroboam, of course, is the other name given to Gideon. Bedan is someone we don't see mentioned at all in the book of Judges. And uh, Jephthah we do, and Samuel we do, but in some manuscripts, it's Samson and not Samuel. So this list of judges is not consistent with the list that we find in Judges. That's the first problem. And the second problem is what I mentioned a minute ago. There are differences in a number of the ancient translations and manuscripts. And you have these four names And yet in different uh, translations, uh, you have other choices. For example, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, the NET, and the Masoretic Text has Bedan instead of uh, Barak. Uh, But the Septuagint, that's LXX for 70, the Septuagint has Barak, uh, which could simply be a confusion of letters because you have... um, Barak, and the second letter is an R. This letter right here is a Hebrew resh, and this is the Hebrew dalit, which is the D. And you see this little bitty edge right here, that's called a tittle. And that little bitty difference is the difference there, and so it would be real easy to misread that particular letter. And then you would have uh, bidan, Uh, Instead of Barak, the last letter is a K that looks like this, and it's very close to the noon, which is like that. And so when you're first learning Hebrew, it's real easy to confuse some of these letters because they are very similar to one another, and so someone could have easily miscopied it. So the bottom line there is we're not really sure what that verse says, but it does indicate in verse 9 that they did confess their sin. Now, in Nehemiah, we have a little different emphasis in Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 26 to 29. And here, Nehemiah is reminding them of God's grace, even in the darkest times in Israel's history. And he is praying to God here, and he says, Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you, cast your law behind their backs, "...and killed your prophets who testified against them, to turn them to yourself, and they worked great provocations. Therefore you delivered them into the hand of their enemies who oppressed them. And in their time of trouble, when they cried to you, you heard from heaven, and according to your abundant mercies, says nothing about them confessing or turning to God." According to your abundant mercies, you gave them deliverers who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they again did evil from you. And then at the end of that verse says, And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And the emphasis here is on God's grace. And I think that as we look at what's going on in Judges, The emphasis of the Holy Spirit and the writer of Judges is not on dissecting their confession or their repentance, but on demonstrating God's unmerited favor and his abundant grace in delivering them time and time again, even though he knew that they were going to turn right around and rebel again, and even though he knew that they would abandon him and that their Uh, Confession was rather short lived, and they could not maintain their walk with him at all, that they would continue to violate the law. And I think this is a major focus in the whole book of Judges is that even in this dark time, God's grace was abundant. It came again and again and again in delivering the people, even in the midst of judgment. And it's God's judgment, He's bringing the oppressor on them, but when they cry out, God delivers them, even though they don't get to the point where they're uh, saying, okay, enough, we're done with the idolatry. Yeah, that took the Babylonian captivity. Israel never had a problem with idolatry again after they returned from the Babylonian captivity. The horrors of Nebuchadnezzar's destruction of Jerusalem drove idolatry, at least physical idolatry, out of out of their soul, but they still committed uh, intellectual idolatry. Now, just the last couple of things in relation to this formula that we'll see as we go through judges is that God graciously provides a leader. And in... uh, Several verses we have the the phrase the Lord raised up a deliverer for Israel to save them in two sixteen and eighteen that's a summary looking forward to what it what it would happen, but the phrase actually only occurs in two of the six episodes in the first two with Othniel and then Ehud but nevertheless God still raised up Deborah and Barak and Gideon. And Jephthah and Samuel, but it doesn't emphasize that. Then, uh, the uh, next to last is that God suppresses the oppressing enemy. And we have this mentioned three times that the oppressing nation, whether it was Moab or Cushan Rishathaim or the Midianites, uh, that that nation was made subject to Israel. And so, Israel defeats them. And the result is that there is peace. There is stability in the land for X number of years. First time it's eight years, then it is about 16 years, and then it is 20 years, and then it uh, it goes back to 7, and then uh, 20, and then 40, until the judge dies. And that's the tail end, the last part of it. And then the judge dies, and then the people go back into sin. So that gives us our overview of what what we're seeing in Judges, finishing up a lot of introductory overview material so that things make sense as we go through the details. And then uh, next time, we will be in, um, we'll look at the first judge. We'll look at Othniel. Now, next week, I'm not going to be here. I'm going to take a little vacation next week, and uh, we'll be in Florida. But Wayne House is going to be speaking on Tuesday and Thursday. I'm not going to miss a Sunday, but I will not be here next Tuesday or Thursday. Wayne House will be here, and he is going to continue to talk about certain aspects of archaeology. And one of his topics is going to be archaeology and the life of Christ. And so I know many of you enjoy having uh, those talks. And I'm also trying to get a whole... I've been playing telephone tag with uh, uh, Dr. Petrovich for the last couple of months, and I'm hoping to be able to get him back when I'm gone uh, again in October because I know everybody really has enjoyed having him. So that's a little preview of coming attractions. So don't forget... Don't leave your stuff in here because there's a wedding here, wedding rehearsal Friday, wedding Saturday afternoon, and you don't want to lose your stuff. Father, thank you for this opportunity to uh, meet this evening, to be reminded of your grace, that no matter how rebellious we may be, no matter how disobedient we may be, no matter what kind of discipline we may encounter in our lives as a result of our disobedience, Nevertheless, it's a manifestation of your love for us and that um, as we cry out to you, uh, hopefully confessing our sin and turning back to you, that you forgive us uh, because Christ died for our sins and you will also provide for us even in the midst of discipline and judgment. And if our nation goes into a time of Uh, judgment because of their rejection of you. We pray that we might stand fast, be strengthened by the Holy Spirit to our mission, and that we might continue to glorify you no matter what takes place. But we have to be trained in your word, and that is how the Holy Spirit strengthens us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.